Well, good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me in, uh, by Zoom, we're not in the studio this time, uh, is Dr. Robert Spies. We have a really great guest lined up tonight, and uh, it's going to be a really interesting show. I think a combination of both our interests. As many of you know, I'm uh, a birder and president of the Mendocino Coast Audubon Society. And so our guest tonight is talking about birds. Uh, he's done a very long-term study on a particular species. Uh, but he is also uh, observing the marine and nearshore environment. And uh, it ties in with the uh, global warming theme that we've visited several times on this show. Uh, Bob, do you want to introduce our guest tonight? Yeah, I'm really pleased uh, to have Dr. Devoki, Dr. George Devoki. Uh, from Seattle, Washington. Uh, Dr. Devoki is a ornithologist and he has been uh, monitoring black guillemots that are also the same as pigeon guillemots, uh, as I understand it, uh, that we have on along our coast, but in the Arctic where they, where they nest on uh, a Cooper Island, a small uh, island uh, southeast of uh, Point Barrow. Uh, Dr. Devoki uh, graduated from the University of uh, Fairbanks uh, in 1996 and um, has a PhD in uh, zoology. And uh, he's got a great story to tell because it, it's not just about the birds, it's about the environment and how it's changing and the value of uh, long term monitoring. So, George, I usually uh, I want to first of all welcome you to the show. Well, thank you. It's, and, uh, it's, it's very good to be here. And uh, I usually start by asking our guests uh, how they got involved in what they do. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that yours is an interesting story, uh, probably starting out really young in life and having an interest in, in biology and so forth. Uh, could you tell our viewers a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, well, um, I'm um, I'm a boomer. So, in I was I was in high school in the 1960s, and um, it was a highly competitive high school. I didn't fit in that well, and I found that bird watching. Uh, and this this was a time when it was bird watching. Birding, as a term, wasn't even uh, invented so much later. I would go out and walk around in the woods and uh, see the birds in northern Ohio, which is a great place to bird. There's a lot of migration, a lot going on. So I got totally uh, taken by it. Uh, I, got, I, I got taken to the point where I actually would frequently skip school during spring migration, which, some, which isn't something people did in 1963 and 64. Um, but then I went off to college uh, in the mid 60s, uh, got my bachelor's um, in zoology, um, and then got a master's um, uh, out of Michigan State um, in ornithology. And um, and, and that took me to the Smithsonian, where I had a, a, a summer internship, which then took me up to northern Alaska. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long, um, a long trip from, uh, from you know, walking through the woods. And I still miss, I, I tell people that I miss the woods of northern Ohio when I'm up in the Arctic, because there were so many things going on there in terms of the birds. How'd you get from the Smithsonian to Point Barrow? Well, I was there uh, in the summer of 1970, and uh, just I was just going to be working with their with their bird skins because essentially uh, that's what the Smithsonian had to offer at that point. They weren't doing that much field research, 
And uh, this was two years after oil had been found at Prudhoe Bay. Um, and, they, and, the, and the pipeline had been held up um, uh, because of environmental concerns. And it looked like they might be taking super tankers. And, and, you know, and there actually was one super tanker that went to Prudhoe Bay to see if you could do that. So, so the Coast Guard was concerned and wanted to do a cruise off of Prudhoe Bay because they had no idea what was off of Prudhoe Bay. Because uh, really people hadn't done the sort of uh, oceanographic work that is done in most places. So they called up the bird division and said, is there anyone who wants to go up to northern Alaska? Um, and <laughs> this was in late September, actually it was in mid-September when, when I went. Uh, so I was on an icebreaker for the summer of 70, well, for, for, for like uh, 1970, 71, 72, um, as part of a Coast Guard effort to see what was going on in the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas. In, in anticipation of oil tanker traffic. And of course, that never came to pass because the pipeline was built. But that's how I got up there. It was all about the fact that, uh, that you know, oil had been found at Prudhoe Bay and they needed a, basically a baseline ornithological assessment. Yeah, there was a tremendous amount of work uh, done up in, the, uh, in Alaska and, and, and uh, in the Bering and Chukchi Seas uh, back in the, 70s, I think, when, when Nixon wanted to expand offshore uh, oil drilling, and um, I forget the name of that program now, but they did surveys all over the place. Oh, OXEP. It was OXEP, yes. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Right, and, and, and so like what, in, in terms of how I got out to Cooper Island, how I got to the place where I've spent the last 47 summers, uh, in 1972, as part of my general assessment of the islands on the Chukchi and Beaufort Sea coast, the Coast Guard would drop me off at one end of these long barrier islands in the morning, and I would walk down censusing the uh, terns and gulls and eiders that were breeding on them, uh, and then get picked up at the end of the day. And it was just an idyllic time uh, because, uh, because I could basically do Lewis and Clark type um, natural history assessment of what was there, because no one had really done this sort of thing for these islands. And I was dropped on Cooper Island, um, it was just one of the many islands that I visited that summer and found that the Coast Guard, or rather, I'm sorry, that the Navy had left a bunch of boxes there in the 50s and that this cavity nesting alcid that typically is found on rocky shorelines was breeding in 10 boxes there. So, and, and that was just something I found as part of that um, Smithsonian work. But then when the OXEP program started, then, then when they were going to drill offshore in the Bering, Chukchi, and Beaufort, they, uh, they, they like opened it up for, uh, you know, grants or proposals. And I said, gee, I can go back to Cooper and do a study on the Tern colony there because it was the largest Tern colony on the Beaufort Sea coast. And I got funding to go back in 1975 and study Terns. But I realized that if I built more boxes, I could get this, this small colony of guillemots of 10 pairs uh, up to a much bigger size that would be worth uh, studying. So I, I created nest sites and created a, a 200 uh, nest site colony, which the Guillemots loved and took over, and, and it got to be the biggest black Guillemot colony in the state. Yeah, that's amazing. We have, we have pigeon Guillemots that breed here, but as you say, they're a bird of the rocky shore, and they breed deep in crevices in the, the sea cliffs and uh, offshore stacks. Yes, that's, I mean, guillemots, I mean, uh, of, uh, birds of the genus Cephas, uh, pigeon guillemots, uh, spectacle and black guillemots, they're opportunistic uh, cavity nesters. And, uh, and, 
and and pigeon uh, pigeon guillemots will breed uh, under under docks like here in here in Puget Sound um, they breed under docks I mean any sort of cavity uh, like that um, but as you say usually they're in these rocky shorelines way back in the talus and the scree and one of the things that was that was uh, that has kept me going back to Cooper is that seabird studies always suffer from the fact that seabirds breed at places where predators can't get to them. Uh, and predators in the past certainly included humans. Yeah. So having having these having these nest sites where I could basically uh, just pick up a box and have access to to the to to the eggs, the chicks, and even even the adults was very unique. And it let me band all the adults on the island. It let me band all the chicks. It let me have basically I could sample every nest on the island, which is basically unprecedented for a seabird colony. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that uh, you had to go to an almost completely inaccessible place on Earth in order to find the most accessible guillemot nests on Earth. Yes, no, it really was. There's, I mean, the only thing similar, kitty wakes, cliff nesting seabirds will breed on, on kind of dockside uh, buildings. And there was a long-term study of kitty wakes where someone had them breeding on ledges, and he could basically go through the warehouse and uh, and open these open these windows, and that was very unique. But yeah, but I've had to go, I've had to make a very long trip every June or late May to get to a place where again, yeah, I had I had access to seabirds. Yeah. Well, there, there's a there's an island in the Gulf of Alaska that uh, who's the Who's the guy that did some of the long-term studies? And they had a great big tower, and they built they built boxes for cormorants, and I think others, uh, maybe some gulls were nesting in there too. And they could open the back uh, of the nest uh, from this uh, inside of this building, and and they had plexiglass so that they could kind of look, kind of one-way mirrors they could kind of look through and look into the private business for what what all the birds were doing. Yeah, that's uh, that's on Middleton and Scott Scott Hatch really. Middleton, yeah, yeah. Scott had um, retired from the Fish and Wildlife Service and now uh, just runs a bird observatory out there full time, and it and it really is amazing. I mean, because yeah, again, you have unprecedented access, and he's even doing things like supplemental feeding of birds to see how that changes various uh, survival uh, things and various things like that. It, and it really is a a great location um, and, and and they have such a they have a rather big infrastructure um, on Cooper I don't have much of an in, in infrastructure and, um, and and again I mean uh, it, it is one of the reasons I've been able to keep the study going because when the funding ran out from the federal government in the early 80s um, I went back for you know basically two decades on my own and I had to keep things simple uh, because I wasn't getting much funding in a year and I, I had I was getting just enough to maintain a very uh, low level, but a very long term study. I think part of the uh, um, interest in your story is not only the birds, but what you went through. Uh, you camped out quite a bit, as I understand it, uh, some, in some of those spare years. And, and I now, I know you now have kind of some sort of a, a, a building there, it looks a bit like a shack. <laughs> but uh, I think that's your story of how you survived. And, and that pretty harsh environment. Uh, granted, you were in the summer, but I imagine the bugs and the loneliness and everything else was uh, something you had to deal with. 
No, it, it's a, uh, um, I mean, it's funny because luckily I started the study when I was, what, 26, 27 or something like that. And uh, and as I tell people when I give lectures, I say you have to be careful who you fall in love or who and what you fall in love with in your late 20s. Um, but, uh, but I mean, now when I look back on it and how I, I was dropped off there once in the 80s with no radio. And I was there for a month and the pilot was going to come back a month later to pick me up. And I would never think of doing anything close to that now in terms of in, ter in terms of the risk. I mean, just in terms of anything minor that might have happened to me with, you know, just a, just like a nail puncture or anything else. I had no way of communicating with the outside world. So, yeah, there were lots of things like that. And to be honest, that's been a big part. I mean, certainly my just the fact I've seen these birds react to climate change has been big. But the other thing is that there is a. I mean, there is a, a human tied to this story. And I mean, I'm most impressed with the physical data that people get from satellites and people get from glaciers and things like that. But many of those, uh, uh, you know, indications of climate change don't have the fact that, that somebody went out to an island for 47 years and, you know, had to deal with all the things I've had to deal with. So it is, it, it like engages uh, people, um, uh, both in terms of, you know, just general talks and just, just in terms of general, general interest, it stays with them more, just more than hearing the fact that uh, global temperatures are up, you know, a certain, uh, uh, a, a certain amount. Yeah, maybe it'd be good to just take a moment and uh, see if you can paint a little picture of what this place is actually like for listeners. Uh, well, it's, uh, it, uh, Victor I mean, would do it, but uh, yeah. Cooper Island is a uh, is a sand and gravel bar, and it has uh, it has no vertical relief. It, it, it is so unlike every other seabird colony, which which I mean, certainly those that support cliff nesting or rocky shoreline uh, uh, seabirds. Uh, it is two meters above sea level at its at its at its highest point, and um, and that's that's both good and bad. I mean, it is good because I can see. I can see things like two miles off and that's good for seeing polar bears when they get to the island. It isn't like they suddenly show up. Um, it's bad because the fact that, uh, th that rising sea levels are, um, are having an impact. Um, and um, it is, it is uh, sand and gravel over a permafrost core. And when I first got out there, it was clear that there was permafrost. I couldn't pitch my tent easily in 1975, even in uh, late June. Uh, because there was frozen ground there and I couldn't really get tent stakes into it. That permafrost has melted. Um, and now that now the island is rather rapidly eroding uh, due to the increasing wave action. But it is a, uh, uh, it is a scene that is somewhat Dali-esque. I mean, it's a very, you, you, you just basically, it looks kind of like a desert uh, in the just sand and gravel running off to the horizon, or if you look towards the ocean side, running off to what used to be the white of the pack ice and now is the, now is the blue of the ocean. And so tell us so a bit about the guillemots themselves. Uh, why, do they, why do they even choose to breed on such a place? Well, it, it turns out that, I mean, once I, you know, had some time to look at what was really going on, I realized that Northern Alaska isn't a very good place for guillemots to breed. And uh, mainly because uh, from, from Cape Lisburn all the way over to Canada in Cape Perry, for 1,600 kilometers of shoreline, there are no natural cavities. So, um, so it isn't a good place for them to breed, but this subspecies of guillemot is adapted to the ice edge. 
Um, and, and the ice used to be just offshore of certainly Point Barrow and, and just offshore of Cooper. So all of the Arctic cod that were present under the ice were there. So, so there were always lots of non-breeding uh, guillemots hanging out in, in, the, in, the, in the area. And when I created uh, more nest sites than the 10 that I found there in 72, they, they, were, they were more than happy to move in. And also because the ice was so close, they did really well in terms of breeding productivity. Uh, they, were, they were fledging two chicks per nest uh, each year. And, um, um, and, and that was, you know, I mean, and again, if I had done the standard study, I would have studied that for five years and that would have been it. And I kept going for a number of reasons, um, not so much scientific, but more kind of both emotional and also kind of a uh, resolve to see what was going to happen next. Um, and uh, I banded all the chicks that had fledged on the island since 1975, and they had started coming back to breed as adults in 78. So that, so that when funding ran out in 82, I'd had a six or seven year relationship with some of these birds that I had color banded with things like, with combinations like orange, green, yellow, and white, green, black. And when the funding ran out, I thought, I have to go back and see what white, green, black is doing this year. I mean, I felt that was something, and again, I mean, I mean it gets back to uh, being able to relate to the individual. I was relating to the individual birds, and I thought, I really want to go back and see what's happened with these birds, and it's a breeding with the same one. So. So like, so like that, that kept me going uh, back. And I just did that until the late 90s when the climate really started to change. And then suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, this is, uh, this is much bigger than a bird study now. These species are doing poorly at a place where they did very well because the ice is melting because the planet is warming. And what is it about the ice that that these guillemots, you said the Arctic cod, are they uh, specifically, uh, they specifically thrive at the edge of the ice pack? How do they? Yeah, do yeah I mean, I mean uh, sea ice, Arctic sea ice uh, has, a, has an ecosystem that is uh, tied to it. There is, there are under ice algae that actually are, are on, on, on the bottom side of the ice. There are, there are in ice diatoms, there, are, there, is, there is phytoplankton that is, that is fixing carbon and providing an energy source to a community that is on the underside of, these, of, of the ice. And uh, I've talked to divers who've gone uh, under the ice and they said it's kind of like being at a inverted uh, coral reef in that, in that you know, there are like fish that are tied to a substrate and there are, there are invertebrates tied to a substrate. So, so guillemots in the Arctic, uh, Mance black guillemots, which is the Arctic subspecies, don't have what guillemots have elsewhere as they would off of California with a near shore that has a lot going on in terms of uh, fish and invertebrates and things like that to feed on. What they have in the Arctic is this inverted system uh, tied into a superstrate that provides fish and zooplankton. And, and, and this subspecies of guillemot has uh, basically uh, evolved to feed on that. And there is this one species of fish, it's, it's the only uh, fish species that's tied to the ice, Arctic cod, which get to be, uh, when they're adults, they don't get as big as usual cod, they're around six to eight inches uh, at their maximum, but, but, they are, but they are very nutrient rich because they're, they're swimming around in water that is uh, minus one to minus two degrees uh, Celsius. 
So they are very fatty. And if you're eating them or feeding them to your chicks, you are, you are using a very high energy source. So, 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 so guillemots just keyed in on that. That's how guillemots have survived up there by basically uh, feeding under the ice. And um, mainly because, because the near shore up there doesn't have all of the kelp beds and other things that lower latitudes do. So the, the, the guillemots would uh, go out to the edge of the ice and dive in and swim underneath it and, and pick off uh, these fish? Is that how it worked? Yes. Yeah. And, and also they will feed in the water column uh, that is very cold right under the ice. Uh, we now have dive profiles that show that they will feed down to oh, almost, you know, to, it, usually it's only 10 meters below the ice. It can be as much as 20 meters. But, but basically the cold water that is associated with the ice um, and the ice substrates um, are the prime feeding habitats uh, for this for this subspecies, which 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 seems to have become so tied to them that um, they don't even know what to do when it's open water. When they're going out to feed, they certainly will um, uh, try to see places where there's ice because they'll have a very good chance of finding Arctic cod under them, and then they can go to that location and dive and have a good chance of doing that. Now, with the ice gone during this critical period when they're feeding the young, all they have is open water. So, uh, so they don't really know, as any good seabird off of California would say, okay, we have to go out and maybe look for convergence zones or look for something that is an indication of prey availability. But, but what the guillemots in, uh, in Arctic Alaska were using for uh, cues just isn't there anymore. So, so I mean, that's, that's one, of the, one of the ways that they're having trouble. So uh, in, in terms of productivity, uh, my impression of the Bering Sea was it, it does produce some, uh, you know, biomass and, and fish and under, under ice ecosystems. But now with the ice gone, uh, is, is the open water productivity with the plankton ticking up a bit or is it, uh, is it kind of a depleted ecosystem uh, compared to like the Chukchi Sea, which has got a tremendous uh, Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's. I mean, it's one of the ironies um, um, that 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 with the loss of ice, uh, you get deeper light penetration penetration uh, of the water column, so you can have photosynthesis taking place at a deeper depth. You get more mixing because of the wind um, uh, being able to work on the surface, so that you can have upwelling. So that so that the loss of ice can actually increase productivity. Which I mean, it's certainly in the Chukchi, which was always a productive sea, but it's getting even more productive. Uh, you know, it's turning in; it's going from an Arctic sea to a subarctic sea, um, and 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 a very productive sub subarctic sea. So that's all happening, and and fish species are coming up from more subarctic habitats like sand lance and capelin. And I'm waiting for guillemots to start feeding on them. But they aren't. Uh, they're 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 turning to like near shore sculpin um, and 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 you know uh, benthic fish that are that are not that uh, uh, high in calories and also are hard to swallow. I mean, sculpins with their big bony uh, spiny heads, um, chicks will turn them down. Whereas there are these these fish populations like like capelin and sandlands, which further south support pigeon guillemot colonies. These black guillemots uh, in Arctic Alaska aren't using them. I know in Prince William Sound, the, uh, the guillemots feed on a tremendous variety of uh, little uh, forage fish like uh, sand lance. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and and like Sam Lance is like a very high quality, you know, high, uh, high, high, high caloric thing. One of the things that's also happening in the Arctic, you know, um, that is both the good news and the bad news is that it's becoming more diverse, uh, mainly because sub because subarctic species are coming up. And for people who ask me about what's happening to bio diversity in the Arctic, because everyone thinks that higher biodiversity is good. And in general, it is. But it, uh, but basically, the Arctic wasn't characterized by having that. It was one of the characteristics. It was low diversity and also low productivity. So it's becoming, you know, more productive and more diverse, which is, I, you know, good to a certain extent, but it isn't the Arctic anymore. Uh, it's now, I mean, at least, at least the fringes are now becoming the subarctic. And you've been watching this happen in real time, basically. At what point did you start to realize that these changes were accelerating? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I have, you know, graphs of, you know, I mean, <laughs> I've been extending my, extending the x-axis on my graphs for, <laughs> for years now. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, but I, I mean, I mean I, I've also had some eureka moments um, that were things that happened to me in the field that I go, what's going on and and like certainly probably one of the biggest was in 2000 well actually one of the biggest was in 2002 when after living out there for 28 years in a tent i looked back and there was a polar bear right next to my tent and i had a shotgun that i typically didn't even unpack i mean i was aware there were polar bears close by but they were never on the island and and the ice had pulled offshore so much in 2002 that we had this polar bear uh, invasion over the next few days. So, so that was a real, I mean, it was, it, it, it was a, it, it was a mid brain response in, in terms of my response to climate change. It was like, okay, you know, I mean, you know, you've, you've been out here for 28 years and you have, and, and you felt very secure and safe. And now the world's largest terrestrial predator is walking around your campsite and he's right next to a tent that has the only shotgun on the Island in it. So like, I mean, that was something that I, <laughs> I that was a that was a pivotal moment, but um, but but the following year in 2003, I was walking around during the period when the parents are feeding their chicks, and guillemots uh, come back with a fish crosswise in their bill. Parent guillemots do this, so it's very easy to see what's being fed. It isn't like certain species that have the fish halfway down their throat, or certain species that basically eat things and then regurgitate to their chicks. So so I've been able to track what fish are coming in. And I was walking down the island and a bird came in from the south side of the island and no one had fed in this very shallow lagoon in the previous 29 years. So I, I, was, I was really amazed and it was carrying a sculpin. And, uh, and it, it was a very large sculpin. And, and I, I like suddenly realized, wait a minute, this means that the Arctic Ocean that basically provided Arctic cod up until now isn't doing that. And parent birds who were trying to feed their young have turned to a food source that has been there forever. And they're now bringing in this lower quality prey um, and feeding that. So that, that, that prey shift that, that, I mean, and, and like seeing that, I mean, of course now I can plot it on a graph and everything else, but being out there and experiencing that uh, was one of the things where the, okay, things are really changing rapidly now. And so was that reflected in the, uh, uh, in the growth of the chicks, uh, uh, during the summer? Yes, it's uh, one of the interesting things. Most seabirds uh, lay only one egg and raise only one chick because 
usually seabirds have to go so far out to feed or to, out, out to find food as they're feeding their young. You know, like albatross breeding on Hawaiian islands go up to the Aleutians on feeding trips to get food for their young. So, so they can only raise one young. Guillemots uh, raise, uh, they will lay two eggs and frequently raise two young because they're feeding close to their uh, nests in the near shore. And because the near shore is a very predictable uh, food source where they can find enough for over the five weeks that the chicks are in the nest, they can find a lot of prey. That was what happened is basically two chicks were fledging from every nest until the mid nineties or so. And then um, what happens is that when food gets limiting, uh, growth rates go down. And what had been a very good thing with both siblings basically getting along, I started seeing sibling aggression. And this was another kind of eureka moment. Um, I, I would see uh, younger chicks, the beta chick in the nest that had been pecked at or had, had feathers pulled off of it. And at first I didn't know what was going on. And I realized that basically this is what happens with the species, it's brood reduction. Um, if the parents can only bring in enough fish for one chick, the chicks deal with that by basically having the alpha chick, the older chick, um, basically be so aggressive to the beta chick that it hides in the back of the site, or it will even drive it out of the nest site if it is, if it is uh, stressed enough. So I was seeing that brood reduction. And then I was also seeing even the alpha chicks that were surviving, uh, having a much lower growth rate and fledging at a at a lower weight. So, so yeah, so that, that's all been, you know, um, uh, been something that's been going on. And now, uh, I mean, it's very rare to have the second chick that hatches in a nest actually fledge, whereas in the past it was very common. Huh. Um, that's an interesting what observation. About the, yeah. What about the survival of the, uh, of the chicks? Uh, you're, you're banding them and they're coming back uh, uh, what, a couple of years later when they're ready to breed uh, in the summertime. And um, is this, you're able to measure survival because you banded them all, right? Right. And that's, yeah, I mean, and, and, the, and again, it, it has just been amazing. And I'm, I'm collaborating with a number of universities now who are looking at immigration because most of the time you have to basically guess who is an immigrant and who isn't. But I know on Cooper, at least since 1970, 79, every unbanded bird that came in has come in from somewhere else. One of the things about the, about the uh, post-fledging survival, about the survival of the young after they leave the island and the adult overwinter survival is that uh, they can go out to the ice edge. I mean, they will fly out, which is what they do. They fly out to the ice edge. They, they, they find the ice and there are cod under the ice. So it is mainly when they are on Cooper Island and have to deal with the fact that they are trying to raise, you know, young there and the ice pulls, you know, 200 miles offshore, they can't really cope with that in any way. Whereas they, for like the other nine months of the year, they can move around with the ice and do rather well. So that survival of young and survival of adults over the winter hasn't shown that much of a change, though it is now because of the Bering Sea ice. Um, and also the Chukchi sea ice uh, uh, forming very late and, and not being as uh, extensive as it, as, it, as it has been. But that was the one thing that kept the colony really going is that 90% of the birds that breed one year uh, will come back and breed the next year. I mean, that is the, that is the annual survival. And, and that didn't change from basically 1976 
um, up until, gosh, 2017 or so. So, um, and then, and again, again, that was a big signal that something is really going on now, because now, now the non-breeding period is something that's showing, showing the impacts of the ice loss. Yeah, that's right. But most birds, uh, post-fledged mortality rate's pretty high. Well, I mean, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, to like say that they're doing uh, well. I mean, uh, uh, early on when I was just building nest sites, every chick that basically survived till three years of age uh, would come back and breed at the colony, and it was as high as forty percent of a cohort that would come back three years later. So, okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, it is. I mean. You know, it's very hard to figure. To I mean, you may have you just have to make estimates about what happens the first year, but it's a standard thing, or at least to be in the books, that fifty percent of seabird young die in the first winter, yeah. um, and then once they get through that, I mean, and you can imagine, especially something like guillemots, which don't go to sea with a parent the way that uh, some species do. I mean, they 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 fly out and they have to figure out everything you know, on their first day out there in terms of how to get enough food to get through. Um, so, so yeah, so probably 50% of all the guillemots and Fletch and Cooper do die in the first winter. But then past that point, um, at least what the thought is, and it seems to be that it goes pretty close to the adult rate. It may go up to 80% survival for the second year. And then after that, it's 90%, which like works out to having roughly 30 to 40% of the birds uh, survive to breeding. Okay. And then how long do, does a typical adult actually live? Well, uh, it was when, I, when I started the study, uh, the like longest uh, or the oldest guillemot on record in terms of the bird banding lab was 13 years or so. And um, I mean, I've had a, a bird up to uh, 29 years. Um, and, wow. uh, and it's, uh, though one of the interesting things that's happening now working with very good modelers out of France who are looking at things in, uh, in a little detail, and they're seeing signs of senescence. I mean, they're seeing that, that like basically uh, mortality uh, becomes higher uh, past 20 years of age. I mean, there are like indications that, um, that you know, there, there are signs that, I mean, it isn't as if you just have to basically uh, be one of the lucky 90% that gets through every year and then you can live to be you know, like 50. Uh, I mean, there are things, there are aging signs that, uh, that, that, that come in. And one of the things we're going to be looking at, because we have, uh, we have information on all the breeding biology of these birds over their lifetime, is to see uh, how growth rates uh, for the chicks uh, and foraging behavior, how that might be uh, impacted by age. And where do they go in the winter? Well, it, it was, uh, it was, uh, we didn't really know, though, I mean, what we knew is that there were concentrations at the Bering Sea ice edge, um, but we didn't know, we also knew that, that for a long time, um, uh, natives living in Utkiavik, uh, uh, what was Barrow, Alaska, uh, had been seeing them when they went out to get seals in the winter. So, so, so we knew that, that they wintered as far north as, as Point Barrow, and as far south as uh, as the as the uh, marginal ice zone at the as the as the ice edge in the in in the bearing, but then in 2011 I started putting on geolocators on breeding birds, which are very small units um, that you put on that you basically attach to a color band with just a zip tie, 
and it records light levels for the next, you know, well, it, it can actually record for the next two years, but it then goes off and records light levels for the next um, nine months. And what you get is because, because there's, there's a time, I mean, basically there, there's, you, you like set the clock in them. You know the time of sunrise and sunset for that bird for those nine months. And, and, and as a result, you can get a position, a latitude and longitude um, for almost every day for the nine breeding period. So we now can track very well the fact that they go out to the ice edge after breeding, and then only as much as the ice moves south, they move through the Chukchi, I mean, basically just, just, just with that leading edge of the ice and into the bearing, and 90, 90 to 95% of the population goes into the bearing sea and is found from, oh, from you know, certainly St. Matthew Islands south to the Pribilofs in ice concentrations of uh, 30 to 60%. They don't like it if it is much more open water than that. They don't like it if it's, uh, if it's much uh, denser than that. Yeah, that's, that's great, man. And, and, and one of the things that I hadn't even thought about, I, I was mainly wanting to see where the birds go in the winter, but there, are a, there, there is a wet-dry sensor in these, in, these, in these units, which basically tells you how, many, uh, uh, how much time birds spend in the water um, and how much time they spend uh, you know, out of the water. And, and guillemots, because they're coastal, I mean, these are coastal, it, it, it is a coastal genus. I mean, like, you don't find pigeon guillemots way offshore, uh, you know, out in open water, because these birds like to roost on things. I mean, they like to roost on rocks, on docks, and things like that. And what, what the ice edge does is let the guillemots in the Bering Sea spend five hours each day. And, and it, it's really something, I mean, throughout the whole non-breeding period, they are up roosting on the ice five hours a day during the, during the darkest part of the day. Um, because I mean, well, for one, they don't have to deal with the thermoregulatory stress of being in cold water. And because they're just basically birds that roost because they're coastal birds. So it is really the ice edge in the winter and, and actually throughout the whole non-breeding season is kind of a proxy shoreline that has this, that has this fish population associated with it that has these roosting sites and, you know, and the guillemots, you know, are obviously uh, very happy there. Hmm. That's amazing. Uh, we had a, I don't know if this was an interview we had or if I heard it somewhere else, but somebody did a similar study with eiders once, uh, one of the early studies with these geolocators, and they thought something was wrong with some of their, uh, their transmitters because uh, it showed that these birds had gone, instead of going south, they'd gone north and they were in the middle of, of pack ice. And oh, it took them yeah, a couple of I years mean, of research to discover that they were actually following leads in the pack ice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and the thing, I mean, really good Arctic bird. I mean, you know, I mean, it, I mean, I always, I always mention this. I mean, people talk about Arctic birds and of course the Arctic in the summer is full of birds that come up there to breathe. Uh, when things, when, when the sun's above the horizon for 24 hours and there's lots of, you know, insects or fish and things like that. But they, but, but they then go south after that. And real, and real Arctic birds don't do that. I mean, I mean and eiders are certainly one of them, and certainly uh, uh, black, black, black guillemots, is that they will go as far south as they have, have to because of the, because of the ice, um, uh, which has lots of advantages. You don't have a big migratory uh, energy cost. Um, and, um, and then and you, you know, and, and if you are adapted to feeding on Arctic uh, prey, um, you might as well stay there. Though, though I must admit, 
there is still a small colony of Arctic terns on the island. And when I think about the fact that the chicks I see fledging from that colony will be in the sub-Antarctic in three months is just fascinating to me. I mean, I mean, it's like science fiction, you know, uh, because I think, wait a minute, how can you do that? How can you fly that far? You know, yeah. Yeah, we had Stan Center talking about that. He said, the sun never sets on the Arctic turn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they spend their summers in the Arctic where the sun doesn't set. And then they fly down for the winters in the Antarctic where the sun doesn't set. Yeah. A hell of a strategy, but what an experience. No, no, yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I mean, when you think about how, I mean, if you think about how certain patterns evolve in terms of migration and things like that, and you think, I mean, you know, I mean, certainly all of these things we're all familiar with, with Northern Hemisphere species, you know, uh, going south a bit to someplace where they can winter and then coming back. Um, those all kind of make sense at a certain level, but when you think, how did, how did the species get to the point where it would, it would go that far? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah what, are the intermediate, what are the intermediate steps? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and the thing is now there, I mean, it is nice now with geolocators on Arctic terns, they're, they're you know, finding the places in both the, you know, I mean, in the, in the, in the lower or in the mid latitudes where they, where they stop and feed. And, um, you know, I mean, they're like finding out much more um, uh, about that. So let's go back to the, uh, the rapid change that's occurring now. Um, and the consequences to the guillemots seem to be that they're having a lot harder time finding their favorite prey. They're either going to have to switch to a different kind of prey or uh, abandon that breeding site. Is that their choice? Well, yeah, though, I mean, one of the things with seabirds is they're so faithful to nest sites. And, and because uh, uh, seabird breeding can be so, can be, you know, down for four or five years and then be good. And seabirds typically live long enough that you don't have to do well every year. The actual birds don't abandon it, but that the recruitment of new birds uh, to, the, and this is what's happened on Cooper, um, seabirds, when they are looking for a place to breed, will will visit colonies during the chick period and see if lots of chicks are being fed. I mean, that, that's the cue that, oh, by the way, maybe I could, I mean, if I breed here next year, I would have a high chance of success. If you show up now, like at Cooper, and the colony was down to this past summer, like 20 functional pairs, and they weren't doing that well, any sort of prospector isn't gonna come in. So, so, like, so like that, that sort of, um, 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 movement into the colony isn't taking place. And what we're also realizing is that, uh, and this is actually rather recently because we have found out there are uh, a series of rocky islands off of Siberia in the far western Chukchi Sea um, that have, that, that are very, that are like, you know, uh, you know, 600, 700 feet tall or so, and they have lots of cavities in them and have population or had populations uh, in the late 20th century of, of, like a, of like an estimated 30,000 black guillemots, um, oh. which, was, which is just phenomenal. So, and, and then, I mean, we have nothing close to that in Alaska. And, and we realize, oh, by the way, that's been the motor. I mean, that's been the thing that's been driving all of our studies is because we have lots of immigrants coming in and our colony um, was, was like doing okay, but certainly wasn't, you know, doing enough to have the, the population go from, 10 pairs to over 200 pairs in, just a, in like a one, a one decade stretch. 
And now that colony, uh, Harold and Wrangell Island, uh, and also the also the New Siberian Islands, uh, uh, further 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 west, they are no longer surrounded by ice as they used to be. So that so that what I'm seeing on Cooper is almost certainly uh, uh, happening there. Uh, no one has gotten back to census them, but all those source colonies that were that were keeping the Western Arctic metapopulation going um, are going through the same thing Cooper is. Um, and um, you know, I, you know, it, it actually looks like this could be the true canary in the coal mine. That if this keeps up, um, you know, maybe a few pairs of guillemots will be able to breed uh, someplace uh, in the Western Arctic. But it isn't quite clear where, um, because because colonies are dropping in number um, uh, everywhere, and certainly productivity has to be dropping. Given the given the given the given the loss of ice, so it's it's tough because up until recently it was like okay, well, what can happen? You know, can we? I mean, is is there a, is there an upside? And we had some birds that were doing well, some long-term birds that were able to figure out the sculpin cod thing, and now they're not even able to do that. Um, so it's been. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean it. Uh, I mean, what I'm monitoring isn't pleasant because I know that I'm going to probably come back uh, every fall and basically be documenting the decline of the of the of the population um, and just seeing at what it, just how fast that happens. Is there any chance that the uh, these birds can go further south from the Chukchi even um, and get into some of the ice that develops in the uh, northern Bering Sea in the winter? I mean, I mean, I mean, to, to uh, I mean, to get to get down there and breed, or to. I mean, sorry, I, I know. Uh, was... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the source colony in the uh, in the western Chukchi are, are diminishing. I'm just wondering if there's potential places that are close enough to the ice that would be, perhaps, in the uh, Russian uh, uh, far east that would uh, be alternate. Uh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, actually, it looks like, I mean, based on like ice information that's been, uh, you know, uh, gathered from old whaling ship logs and things like that, probably ice conditions were good in the southern Chukchi, you know, as late as the 1920s and 1930s in terms of what guillemots need. But now the whole, I mean, now there really is this retreat and, and you know, and it's just major. And also it's so fast that you know i mean there was no chance for the species i mean if they had a very short generation time maybe uh maybe you could you know adapt to it but when you are as when you don't breed until maybe five to six years of age and then it takes so long for your young to come back even those birds that are successful in this ice-free situation can't really you know repopulate the the, the area with their genes fast enough so the, the site fidelity for breeding is really kind of working against them to adapt quickly to the, the changes. Yeah, and yeah, and they, I mean, and the thing, and there's uh, one of the things we were able to look at, and actually I didn't even mention this, but the first indication of climate change in the late 90s was that egg laying was getting earlier. Uh, I used to go out to Cooper in late June uh, and still be there for the first egg. Then I realized I started, and this was actually one of the first things I realized. By the way, I'm, I'm flying up, oh, sorry. I'm flying up earlier um, and, um, and uh, earlier and earlier, and the egg laying is getting earlier and earlier. 
and um, it, it was it was because the snow was melting earlier. Uh, basically, there was atmospheric warming, and so. But what was clear is that the birds were able to to cope with that. They were they were looking at the. Uh, I mean, they were able to have a a good a plastic response to these changes. And someone just uh, finished a very nice master's that was recently published, looking at seven generations of, because uh, that's how many generations we have now, to see if this response was, uh, was something that was being inherited. Uh, and it turns out that it isn't. It's basically individuals being plastic. So, so uh, which, which means that basically, uh, you know, the birds aren't evolving. Uh, they're basically just being able to be such generalists that they can cope with changing situations but that won't be able to take them through the major changes that are coming up. Yeah, it won't, help them, won't help them delay early if the ice retreats before. Well, yeah, yeah, no, and that, that's it. I mean, they, uh, they, well, I mean, and actually one of the things I never, in terms of climate change, and this was another thing that this, you know, uh, I mean, you know, I was just doing a standard bird study, but, uh, I was, uh, I got out to the island uh, uh, in 1984 uh, earlier than the birds did, uh, which, which had never happened before. They're staging off Point Barrow, and I thought the birds would be there in late May, but they weren't. And they don't show up until the snow melts uh, for a number of reasons, because of predators and also there's no open water close by and they're waiting for this one pond to melt. So their timing of arrival, because I went out, in, uh, in in other years to see if this was true, they are timing their arrival to the um, to the to the to the timing of snowmelt on the island. Um, and then in 1988, we had this major snowstorm late in uh, the chick period, and it snowed and covered up many of the nest sites, and the parents couldn't feed their young. Hmm. And I saw, oh, by the way, okay, so the, so, so the birds are breeding as soon as the snow melts. I mean, they're coming in and, and the first eggs are being formed basically on, on the date that they first arrive and can get into a nest site. And they're doing that because it takes them 80 days to raise young. From, from the point they start ovulating to the point that chicks fledge is 80 days, which is a very long time in the Arctic summer. Yeah. And, and then I started looking at the snow records for, uh, for, uh, for Barrow Ikeabic and realized that, that the snow-free window in the summer um, only got to be longer than 80 days in the late 60s. And that, and that, uh, that certainly in the past when they were trying to breathe, if, if they certainly were, they weren't probably doing it successfully because, because it was snowing too early um, uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the nestling period. So, so, so like that was a major, I mean, so like, I mean, it, it's been this thing where, 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 where the island, if that snow interpretation is correct, and it certainly seems to be, that basically Northern Alaska was too cold in the mid-60s to support a black guillemot colony. And now in the early 2020s, it's too warm. To yeah. And, and, and again, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm just, because, you know, for like, Really, for 28 years, I just did a black guillemot study, and then the climate change thing came in. And the fact that I happened to be monitoring it over that period, I mean, that basically my study takes up much of the period when northern Alaska had things were just right, that basically uh, the ice was close enough and the breeding season was long enough for them to breed successfully. And, and the cavities were there, right? The cavities yeah. weren't there before right. the 1950s. 
Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah no, and the cavities happen to be there. And I, uh, one of the things that's happened with the cavities though, is that after the, that, after that polar bears showed up in 2002 and then basically polar bears have been there every summer since I realized that my great access to the nest sites, which I, you know, love so much also meant that anything walking down the beach had the same access. So we had polar bears wipe out the colony. I mean, basically, you know, polar bears stranded on the beach um, in August going and flipping over every wooden site that I had there and huh. eating, eating the, eating, eating the chicks. And this happened, oh, like, oh, I mean, started or it really got bad in like, in um, 2009. In 2009, we had one chick fledge because polar bears had eaten everything else. Wow. Um, and so like, so like, I thought, well, basically, basically this, this, this study is over. And someone in town, uh, someone in Seattle said, isn't there something you could do to make a polar bear proof nest site? And I was packing things up uh, in a pelican case. And I realized, yeah, if I drill the hole in a pelican case and put a little baffle in it, and I put it there because these birds are such generalists, they would almost certainly breed in it. So, so in 2010, I took 10 pelican cases out and the only successful breeding in 2010 was in these pelican cases. So in 2011, I took out 200 uh, nano, uh, that's, the, that's the company in Canada that makes up nano cases, uh, that they had given me a very good price on, that I had drilled holes in and put a baffle and replaced every wooden site that had been used since 1975 uh, with these plastic cases because I had video, and, and it's online, of a polar bear in 2010 trying to get into one of the pelican cases and it couldn't do it. It was flipping it over, um, but, but basically the chick survived. Um, and, and I realized, okay, I can keep the study going if I have these cases out there. So, so basically since 2011, 2012, all the breeding has taken place in what looked to be from the air, just black suitcases that are strewn, strewn off on the island. Talk about a cargo cult, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's, um, yeah. And it's Have you ever That's uh, literally a, a cargo cult addicted. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, it, it, I mean, it, and, and it, it's a, uh, I mean, one of the sad things now is that, I mean, I, I took the uh, took these cases out there, took these plastic nest, nest cases out there when the colony was down to maybe 150 pairs. But I wanted to make sure that colony size wasn't changed by my modifying this, so I took 200 out there. And it, what's really sad now is that this past summer, only 20 nest sites during the chick period mm. were being used. So there are like 180 unused, mm. uh, you know, nest cases out there, which um, yeah. Wow. Which, I mean, and the thing is, I mean, I mean, it's very, it, it gets to be very depressing um, uh, being, I mean, it is the total opposite of being out there in the 70s and seeing the colony grow and seeing all these uh, young fledge uh, to being out there and having things, having it be a small colony and having the birds, having the few birds that are trying uh, typically not be successful. Yeah. This is one of the drawbacks to having a long-term study. Sorry, Bob. I just wanted to point out we only have about five minutes left in the program. So uh, if there's anything that we want to wrap up on, it's time to start turning to that. I mean, do you have any last questions? Well, just, just uh, are you still bothered by polar bears there, uh, uh, either personally or are they still trying to get get to the chicks or are they discouraged because of your pelican cases? 
Well, I mean, I dealt with the chick issue with that case. And actually, one of the reasons I realized I thought about chick issue is that after 2002, and we had to have search and rescue come pick us up uh, in 2002 because we had a lot of bears coming in. And we had one bear, and we were just intense. And we had one bear we couldn't back down, a young male. So we actually abandoned our campsite uh, and let him rip the tents up, uh, mainly because I didn't, I didn't want to shoot him. Uh, which was the only way we think we, we, we could stop them. So yes, polar bears. So, so then the following winter, I bought an eight by 12 cabin someone had built in, uh, in Utkiavik and hauled it out over the ice. And I've lived in that cabin for, you know, I mean, every, every summer since. But uh, this past summer, I was very lucky to have a field season. I, I, I had the polar bear fence. I now have an um, electric fence that I set up. But I had a polar bear that basically got over that and was banging on the front door uh, while I was sleeping, um, which was which which was very which is very disconcerting. So yes, bears were there, and um, now I carry a gun constantly. But I'm well aware that it's going to be the crazy bear that's probably going to bother me because I've been able to to scare every bear off just by you know uh, actually waving my arms and worst case scenario just firing a shotgun up in the air. Wow. That is some serious dedication to scientific research. Well, I mean, and you know, and I mean, and I mean, as I get, I mean, I mean, give, given this year where everyone's thinking about risk and things like this, I must admit, being on the island was. I'm thinking, like, wait a minute, why did I? Why? Of course, it was. It was. It, it, it was a great place to quarantine as such. But I'm thinking, yeah. wait a minute, I've been taking, and and I even mentioned that I'm going to be writing a blog post about the fact that the quarantining at a Gillimot colony could be called guillotining, but it's a. <laughs> Uh, but it was a, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it, it does make you think, uh, I mean, it's, it's very different being out there at my age now versus being out there when I was in my late twenties in terms of what I thought was a risk and, and various things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Well, it's an amazing story, Dr. Devoki, and I really want to thank you for sharing it with us and our listeners. No, no, well, thanks, thanks, thanks very much. And you know, I do have a website, cooperisland.org. I'll be putting a summary of the 2020 field season on there. But, but uh, either uh, googling uh, Cooper Island or my name, there's a lot of videos and other things with polar bears and stuff that people can see. Yeah, and we have yeah. links to those up on our website as well, and that's ecologyhour.wordpress.com. There's a great YouTube that uh, George has, uh, kind of. Uh, you with your photographer friend from the was he from New York Times? I forget. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Joe McNally. Yeah. 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 And uh, kind of documenting the changes over time and what the study is all about. And, uh, viewers can have an idea of what Cooper Island looks like and and uh, Georgia Shack and uh, <laughs> some of the things that are happening out there. It's a it's a fascinating story and. I have to commend you, George. You're you're a you're a great dedicated scientist, and and uh, you, this long-term data studies are just uh, amazing. They're hard to get hard to get funding and uh, and hard to keep going, but you've done it. And, uh, congratulations. Well, well like, thank you, thank you. But I do want to point out that no one goes up to someone on their 47th wedding anniversary and says, "I have to give credit to you too because you're so dedicated." So I'm just saying that I you know I had a lot of fun doing this. It's been very satisfying. And, uh, and, and I, I certainly do, you know, appreciate people who now also appreciate it, but, uh, but it's been something that's been fascinating. Uh, and for someone who is, 
who, who was very curious about nature, it was kind of a totally amazing thing to see. Yep, it's an amazing story. Thanks very much. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. And as I said, uh, we'll have some links to more information about George's work on our website, ecologyhour.wordpress.com.